There we go. Big round of applause. <laughs> Better be good then. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm really happy uh, to be here with you this morning. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, before we <clears throat> jump into our sermon today, I wanted to take a moment to talk about a couple of things. Um, first is that a lot of you knew um, Pat Sherman, uh, one of our congregants. Uh, Pat uh, passed away, went to be with Jesus this last Sunday, and um, we are grateful for her life and for all that she meant to this community. And uh, the family wanted uh, to uh, extend an invitation to all of you, the congregation, to come and celebrate her life uh, in a memorial service here at the church at 1 p.m. on Friday. So if you'd like to come and to celebrate Pat, we would love to, to have you here. I'm also going to take some time to pray for a few things that are happening in our world. There's always things that are happening in our world. There's always a reason to pray, and it's always a good idea to pray when there are things happening. I'm going to pray by name some of these things that are happening in the world, but I know that I'm missing many, many. So um, I would encourage you as I'm praying, would you as well lift up your request to God who hears our prayers? Let's pray together. Good Father, we thank you that you are that. You are a good Father who hears our prayers, who has compassion on his children. And Lord, we want to come to you this morning and we want to lift up Pat's family as they are grieving the loss of someone they love very much. I pray that there would be all the right space for all the right things in this time. That they would be um, given the space to, to mourn and to grieve. That they would be given the space to laugh and to celebrate. We pray that uh, all of this would belong and that your peace and your compassion would be poured out. Lord, we want to continue to pray for the aftermath of the earthquakes in Turkey and in Syria. Tens of thousands of people have lost their lives, and the impact of this tragedy is going to be resounding for generations, and so we pray for your mercy. We ask for your healing touch, for the peace and comfort of your presence to fall on those people. We ask for your church in the area, that they would be a light, that they would be salt, that they would be an embodiment of your mercy. Lord, we want to continue to pray for the war in Ukraine. We want to ask for peace. Would there be an end to the fighting, an end to the conflict? Would you bring about your peace, your shalom? Lord, we pray for an end to all violence. There's so much of it around the world and in our country. There is gun violence. There is uh, more mass shootings that have taken place this last week. And we ask, Lord, have mercy. Would you bring peace to this land and healing? And Lord, for everything else, we know that we can never pray for everything. We lift up this congregation. We lift up our community. We ask that your grace and your peace would be alive in us and that it would spill out to the people around us. We love you. We thank you, Lord. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. It's important that we do stuff like that. Well, today we are closing out our Grace and Peace series in the book of Philippians. Uh, this book has been described as many as the Epistle of Joy, which is fascinating because the Apostle Paul is writing from a Roman prison 
which has a reputation for being really awful and inhospitable. And he's writing to a tiny church of about 40 people who are being persecuted and shamed by their community. So all around, the evidence points to the fact that the circumstances on both sides of this letter are actually pretty bleak. And yet Paul encourages them to be filled with joy and to live out the blessing of grace and peace from their Lord Jesus. Now, Paul is not blind. He knows that there are lots of reasons to be afraid, to experience anxiety, and to lose hope. And yet, there is a bigger reason to endure for the sake of the gospel. Because the hope of resurrection life, the promise of heaven on earth, is worth any pain that we could suffer in this life. So he encourages the church to keep going, to be faithful, to stand firm. And this kind of hope that Paul is encouraging them to take up is amazing because it's not just about something that we'll receive one day. It is. But it's also about something that we can embody right now, experience right now. The Christian life, if you are doing it right, though, requires endurance. It does. It requires that we stand firm because the world is constantly in a state of distortion, twisting all of God's good design into sin. And to live in Christ is to constantly find yourself going against the grain, constantly swimming upstream. And this reality never lets up. We are going to be swimming upstream until Christ returns and changes the current, right? So this begs the question, as a Christian, how do we endure? How do we keep going? How do we stand firm? How many of you have ever heard the story of Robert Conrad? Rob is a former NFL fullback in the Miami Dolphins. I know Pastor Lane is using a sports reference. He didn't reference Star Trek today. Sound the trumpet. The Lord has heard your cries and has had compassion on you. Well, one day, Rob, uh, he took a fishing boat by himself off the coast of Florida. His boat capsized. He was thrown from it without a life jacket. And he found himself nine miles from the shore. Nine miles. Just for context... The swimming distance for a full Ironman triathlon is 2.4 miles. It takes the average Ironman athlete about 35 minutes to swim one mile. Rob was a retired athlete, but he was not a trained swimmer. He swam for 16 hours before he finally made it back to the shore. And during that time, he was stung by several jellyfish. At one point, he was encircled by a shark who finally decided to move on and leave him alone. He spotted a recreational fishing boat, but no matter how much he yelled and waved his arms, they did not see him, and they moved on. When night came, a search helicopter actually flew over him, and their searchlights shone down on top of him, but they didn't see him, and they kept going. When they interviewed him, they asked, how did you keep going? What motivated you to keep swimming? And he said, I just kept thinking, I have two daughters at home. I have a wife. They need me. I got to get back. Robert was able to make it by keeping, how he says it, his heart and his mind on the goal of being there for his family. He was able to endure for this unprecedented amount of time through horrible circumstances because he never took his eyes off the target. He knew what he was swimming for. That's how he was able to endure. This is the question that we're going to be asking ourselves today. What are we moving towards? Because that's going to be what allows us to keep going, if we can keep our eyes on the target. 
You know, the part of the story that was so heartbreaking for me was his realization that even though there were people around him, that help wasn't coming. In the interview, he said that he was on his own. If a man alone can endure for the sake of his family, how much more can one whom God draws near to endure for the sake of the gospel? We are not alone. Christ draws near to us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we are with a long line of saints who have gone before us and given their lives for the sake of the gospel. They're called the great cloud of witnesses. We are not alone. So it's with this question that we go to the text today. How do we endure? How do we keep going? Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. In this way, dear friends, I plead with Iodia and plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord, always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul opens this final section of the letter, encouraging the Philippians to stand firm. Some uh, translations say endure. Remember that the pop this is a popular retirement community for the Roman military, and athletics are a really high value for the Greco-Roman culture. So Paul is conjuring up this imagery of standing firm, of enduring that they would be familiar with. In a battle scenario, in a sports competition, stand firm, endure, keep going. So Paul is going to tell them, how do we do this? How do we stand firm? How do we keep going? You can write this down. One, we humbly contend for unity. We humbly contend for unity. So Iodia and Syntyche, they're, they're addressed by name in this letter, which is a sign of deep affection. It's an open public letter to the whole church that's read out loud, right? So as they're reading this letter out loud in their church, Iodia and Syntyche are hearing their names being read out loud. Both of these names suggest that they're from pagan origins. So they were people that weren't in Judaism who discovered who Jesus was and decided to become Christians. And they apparently hold some authority in the church. And Iodia, oh, and the, the companion that Paul mentions, by the way, a lot of scholars think is actually Luke, who spent a lot of time in Philippi. And Iodia and Syntyche are having some sort of major agreement. Uh, sorry, disagreement. <laughs> some sort of major agreement. Yay, good job. Um, they're having some sort of major disagreement, and we don't know what it is. He doesn't say what it is, but it's big enough for Paul to put it in the public letter. Now, it doesn't take a military genius to determine that if an army is going to be successful against an opponent, it needs to be unified. You can disagree about military tactics all you want, but when the enemy comes, you better be unified against the attacker. 
Jesus in Matthew 12, he's casting out a demon. And the Pharisees accuse him of using a demon to cast out demons. And this is what Jesus says. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Hmm. The church, friends, must not be split and weakened. It can't. We must contend for unity. Listen, this is not about yielding to other people. and prior- it's, it's, about, it's about prioritizing our shared mission over our individual preferences. We don't know exactly what the disagreement is, but Paul is putting it in this letter because it's a really big deal. And here's the thing. Sometimes different Christians experience the transforming power of Jesus in their lives and yet draw very different conclusions about really important things. That happens. Notice that Paul isn't choosing sides here. He's not stating between the two of them who's right and who's wrong. He's basically saying, um, figure it out. Because there are a lot more important kingdom things to deal with than whatever you're arguing about. Look, living in unity does not require that we set aside our convictions and our opinions regarding things like politics or finances or education or or whatever. We're allowed, I would even say we're encouraged, to have strong convictions about really important things. What we are not encouraged to do, however, is allow those convictions to keep us from serving one another in love. We are not encouraged to allow someone's political opinions to color the way that I see them as anything less than beloved of God. We can argue, we can debate, we can disagree all we want, but we had better not stop showing up for one another in loving service. We had better not stop loving and serving one another. Look into the eyes of the most stubborn fundamentalist, the most progressive liberal. If they worship Jesus as their Lord and their Savior and they claim the power of the cross and the hope of the resurrection as their primary conviction, guess what? That person is your brother, is your sister, is your mother, is your father. It is family closer than blood. That's who they are to you, whether you like it or not. So to dismiss someone or show prejudice against them because of a disagreement, this is not something that we have an option to do. This is not something that Jesus' followers get the freedom of. (laughs) Jesus, on his Sermon on the Mount, he said this, you've heard it said, or sorry, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, racha, which is like an insult of condescension, it even sounds like spitting, right? Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell? Yo, I didn't say it. (laughs) Jesus said it. We can disagree all we want, but Jesus told us that to condescend and to look upon others as anything less than beloved of God because of their opinions and their convictions, that's not a virtue of heaven. It's actually a pollutant of hell. That's what Jesus said. And listen, sometimes it's hard. I'm not saying that this is easy. This might very well be one of the hardest things that Jesus asked us to do, actually. Which is why there's about 45,000 different denominations of Christianity across the globe. That's not an exaggeration. 45,000. 
The Foursquare Church is exploding in every single nation around the world except for in the U.S. We are closing more doors than we are opening every year. A house divided against itself cannot stand. It's not easy. I get it. Sometimes I think, how can you love the same Jesus that I do and vote like that? How can you love the same Jesus that I do and support that policy? How can you love the same Jesus that I do and be okay with that thing? How can you love the same Jesus that I do? Fill in the blank. We've been there, right? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether or not we understand. It's not up to us to determine the authenticity of a person's relationship with Jesus. I am not the judge of the living and the dead. That job's taken. It doesn't mean that we don't stand up for what's right, what we believe is right. It doesn't mean that we don't vote fervently the way we feel like we should vote. It doesn't mean that we don't, don't contend for accountability and justice. It doesn't mean that. It just means that before God, we all face judgment. We all fall short, and we all need Jesus. And it is that need for Jesus which unites us above every other matter. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Now, the only way to live out this really impossible task, because it feels impossible, doesn't it? The only way to live it out is to receive and then share the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. Unity will only come if we are humble. Think back. He had just written two chapters earlier. In chapter 2, he challenged the Philippians, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but regard others as higher than yourselves. Humility. And then he shows us Christ. <laughs> he says, Christ was God. Did he use equality with God to, to have his own advantage? No. He gave himself up in sacrificial love, even making himself a servant. Right? He had the right to humiliate everyone around him all the time, and he could have. He could do it to you and me right now if he wanted to. But Christ being God and God being love never stopped being loving. Even if he was frustrating, even if he was angry, even if he was challenging, he never stopped being loving. And we tend to have a more difficult time than Jesus did upholding love as the priority above our convictions and opinions, right? We have a hard time holding truth in one hand and grace in the other. And the Christian life is really about holding both all the time and dealing with the tension and the messiness that comes with it, right? I had a marriage counselor once who told me, hey, Lane, guess what? You can be right or you can have a relationship. <laughs> that doesn't mean I don't argue with my wife. What it means is our relationship is not about one of us being right. It's about intimacy. We tend to really value our own thoughts and opinions, don't we? Like a lot. We tend to hold our own thoughts and our opinions as the paramount standard for truth. Of course we do. I wouldn't have an opinion if I didn't think I was right. <laughs> but the key is to have enough humility to understand that everyone thinks that. Everyone lives this way, even me. And guess what? Even me, even you, we can come to the wrong conclusions about things. And we can have foolish opinions about things. None of us are infallible of that. Have you ever seen Inside Out by Pixar? Important film. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. Chef's kiss. Mwah. 
Basically, if you haven't seen it, the movie takes place inside the mind of an 11-year-old girl named Riley, and all of her emotions are anthropomorphized as distinct characters, right? So joy is a character. Sadness is a character. Well, joy is on a journey through Riley's mind with one of uh, Riley's old imaginary friends named Bing Bong. Who's your friend who likes to play? Thank you. I took a risk and you didn't let me fall. I, I appreciate it. Can you imagine? All right. Uh, well, anyway, they hitch a ride to the control center on a train of thought. Clever. And, and they knock over a bunch of these crates that are labeled opinions and facts. And all of the opinions and facts just kind of jumble in a big pile on the floor. And Joy and Bing Bong are scrambling to pick up all the pieces and put them back in the right crates. And, go, and Joy goes, oh, no, these facts and opinions look so similar. And Bing Bong responds, don't worry, it happens all the time. And they just start haphazardly putting them back in the crates <laughs> as that heads to the control center of the brain, right? Let's be honest. Let's be humble. This happens more than we'd like to admit. You can be really well-informed about something and be wrong. And you can be really uneducated and yet have wisdom, right? Competing agendas are beside the point. As people who follow Jesus, we have no agenda except that people come to know the transforming love of Jesus. That's our agenda. This means humbling ourselves as Jesus did and prioritizing loving service over winning an argument. Okay, so how do we endure? We contend humbly for unity. Two, we join, you can write this down, join the audacious rebellion of joy. We join the audacious rebellion of joy. Now, if you're like me, you may have heard verse four and felt really guilty. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You might think, well, I don't always feel happy, so I've already failed there. Not a good Christian. Be anxious about nothing. Yep, failed that one too. I definitely feel anxious about a lot of things. But here's the deal. The same Paul who wrote, rejoice in the Lord always, is also the Paul who wrote, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Okay? So he can't be saying what sometimes we think he's saying. The scriptures are full of passages that express anxiety, worry, fear, and sadness, grief, and suffering. You ever read through the Psalms? Whoa. A third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. If we, as we step into Lent uh, next week, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about what role lament has in the life of the Jesus follower. But expressing our difficult emotions to God, this is, this is normal and good. God even holds it up as worship to him, to bring our anxieties and our fears to him. So Paul is not asking the Philippians to ignore their anxiety, to stuff it down and put on a happy face. So that's plastic faith, right? That's not authentic faith. Now, what Paul is talking about here is retraining how we respond to our anxiety by adjusting our perspective and choosing to trust in God. That's what he's talking about. He's telling the Philippians, look, when you feel anxious, don't get comfortable in your anxiety. Don't dwell on it. Don't obsess over things that worry you, because that's what we do, right? When we feel anxious, we start obsessing about the thing that makes us feel anxious, hoping that it'll make us feel less anxious, then we feel more anxious. It doesn't work, right? Paul's encouraging the Philippians, look, I know that there's a lot going on. I know that there's a lot of reasons to be afraid. But remember, we have a good and perfect God who cares deeply for us and who has promised to give us everything we need. 
So with gratitude in your hearts, take these requests, take these things to God, practice prayer, practice shifting your perspective, and choose to trust in God anyway, instead of choosing what your eyes can see, because your perspective is limited. Trust that he is working everything together for good, even if it doesn't seem like it. And when we do that, that's when we get to learn how to receive the peace of God, which transcends anything that we can comprehend or understand, right? You know, some of the times in my life where I have felt the closest to God have been when I have been the most scared, the most discouraged, because the, in that desperation, right, I've learned to depend on God. And I have to choose to trust him. I have to. Despite the way things look around me, it becomes really possible to actually know peace as an embodied truth, not just as an idea. So in the same way that, like, our faith is best tested when we're faced with extreme doubt, right, our peace is best tested when faced with extreme chaos. That's when we can know it's real. The revivalist and the theologian John Wesley said this, I feel and grieve, but by the grace of God, I fret at nothing. Reflect on that statement for a second. I feel and grieve, but by the grace of God, I fret at nothing. Even Jesus wept, but he never fretted. Even Jesus lamented, but he never lost trust in the Father. So going to God in prayer, what this really is, it's retraining our, our spiritual reflexes. That's what it is. I did a Japanese jiu-jitsu for 10 years. And one of the things that's really important in any kind of martial art is to retrain one's reflexes. Because most people's natural response to things like getting hit or falling actually lead to more injury. One of the most important things they teach you in jiu-jitsu is, is you need to learn how to fall because there's a lot of judo involved in Japanese jiu-jitsu, a lot of throwing and a lot of falling. So you need to know how to fall without hurting yourself. When people fall, we do a lot of really understandable things. That's a natural instinct, but they actually cause more harm. When you fall face forward, what's your first instinct? Put your hands out, right? What they actually find, I don't know any ER nurses in here. When people fall, they actually hurt their wrists and elbows and shoulders more than they hurt their face, right? Because they're falling on their arms. So they teach us in jiu-jitsu to roll out of it, to use your momentum to roll out of the fall, or to distribute your weight evenly to break the fall. I thought about de demonstrating it, but <laughs> I'm wearing boots. We won't, we won't do that. Uh, <laughs> this is what spiritual formation is, by the way. When you hear the word spiritual disciplines, this is what they help us do. They help us to retrain our natural impulses our natural responses in certain situations that are totally normal and natural and understandable, but they're not always what's helpful, and they retrain them, right? And they retrain us to respond the way that God wants us to in the way that's good for us. When somebody comes in the middle of the night to take away my closest friend and teacher to an unjust trial that will most likely end in his execution, it's normal and natural for me to want to take out my sword and cut the dude's head off, even if I miss and take off his ear. But maybe... Jesus has other plans. Maybe Jesus actually planned on dying for that man rather than killing him. This is when we move from mindless reactions to prayerful responses. It's normal and natural to react this way, but there's a better way. 
Paul challenges us, don't obsess in your anxiety. No, let your gentleness be evident to everyone around you. Rejoice in the Lord even when everything around you is falling apart. Even when it doesn't seem to make sense, express your gratitude and joy to God. Do it anyway. Because no matter how grim things get, we know that God is always taking everything that was meant for evil and he's repurposing it for his good. Which brings us to our next point. How do we endure? We humbly contend for unity. We join the audacious rebellion of joy. And three, we embrace the promise of heaven. We embrace the promise of heaven. Paul talks about what the reality of heaven looks like. Sometimes we think about heaven as like this plane of existence that we might get to one day. Heaven is a dimension of God's presence that we can experience right now. So when Paul describes these things at the end of this section, he's describing the principles of heaven. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from in me, put it into practice and the peace of God or the God of peace will be with you. Paul is embracing this reality that although hell has been unleashed all around us and although evil has its claws in the flesh of humanity, heaven has also been unleashed. And the Holy Spirit has made his home in the hearts of human beings. So even though we aren't there yet, even though we have yet to see the full revelation of God's glory, the new Jerusalem descend out of heaven, and the new heavens and the new earth to be remade in the new creation, there is a piece of that promise that is alive in each of us, that we can embody heaven, even though we're not fully there yet. We may not be free of all of our sin, but we are full of forgiveness. We may not be free of our anxiety, but we are full of peace. We may not be able to escape death, but we have the promise of life. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because of what Christ did on the cross, because he rose from the grave, it does not matter how badly we lose on this side of eternity because we can never be defeated. He's already won. It doesn't matter how big of a debt we have that we could never repay because we've already been forgiven. It doesn't matter if we are surrounded by hell because we are claimed by heaven. It doesn't matter if we die today because resurrection is coming. And the more that these truths are trained into our hearts, the more that we rejoice, even though it doesn't seem to make sense, that's when we get to receive the peace of God. I want to share a little bit about the story of Polycarp the Admirable. I know, kind of a weird name, not a fish. St. Polycarp of Smyrna, he was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he was a prominent leader in the church during the second century. Towards the end of his life, Roman persecution was against Christians was getting pretty brutal. Christians were being sentenced to death by things like crucifixion and wild beasts and being burned alive. And Christians were commanded to pledge allegiance to Caesar as the Lord. And Christians obviously only worshipped one person as the Lord, and that's Jesus. Well, when Polycarp was well into his 90s, he was an old man, he was sentenced to burn at the stake because he refused to burn incense to the Roman emperor. Well, the Roman authorities, they were sent to arrest him, and they were mounted on horseback, and they had swords and spears, and they were shocked to enter his home and to find this elderly man 
who made no effort to run or put up a fight. In fact, Polycarp invited the men to his home, and he had prepared a meal for them. And he said, eat as much as you want. All I ask is that I have an hour of uninterrupted time for prayer. So for two hours, Polycarp prayed out loud. And everyone that was present began to grieve that they were sent to arrest such a venerable and courageous person, someone who was so full of peace and grace. They tried to convince him to denounce his faith. They said, just honor the emperor. We don't want to have you die. Just denounce Jesus, and this can all go away. Of course, he refuses. Later, as he's standing in the stadium before the proconsul, the, uh, the proconsul asked him, you know, denounce Christ, declare Caesar as Lord. He again refused. So he was sentenced to be burned alive right then and there. So the people began to crowd around him and to tie him to the stake, but he said, no, no, no. The Lord will give me strength to stay in the flames. I won't run. Wow. <laughs> and before he was executed, he prayed this prayer out loud. I bless you for considering me worthy of this day and hour, of sharing with the martyrs in the cup of your Christ, so as to share in the resurrection to everlasting life of soul and body in the Holy Spirit. May I be received among them into your presence today, as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. For this and for everything, I praise and glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved child, through whom him and with him may you be glorified with the Holy Spirit, both now and forever. Amen. So with his dying breath, he gives a theological <laughs> explanation of the Trinity. That's pretty cool. They set the wood beneath Polycarp on fire. And what's crazy is that all the accounts of this story, people describe kind of seeing this invisible shield around Polycarp, that the flames couldn't touch him. They couldn't touch his skin. They describe it almost like a force field. And this kind of evokes this imagery of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, doesn't it? When they also refuse to worship a pagan god and bow down, they get thrown into a furnace, but the flames can't consume them either. And before they were thrown in, they said, listen, our God's going to save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow to your idol. So with Polycarp, the, the proconsul was seeing this happen, and he eventually ordered one of the Roman guards to take a spear and to kill Polycarp, to stab him. And he was killed. Why? What, what's the point of this miracle of the flames not touching his skin if he was just going to be stabbed moments later? His flesh was vulnerable to the weapons of humanity, but the flames of hell had no power over him. This is a perfect image of the kind of hope and joy and peace that fuels Paul as he writes this letter. It doesn't matter what fate I suffer on the earth because there is no fate that can rob me of heaven. And we feel this tone, this assuredness, as he closes the chapter in verse 19. And my God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever. Amen. He says, listen, he's going to give us everything we need. Even if it's not everything we want, he'll give us everything we need. Trust in him. This is what Paul means when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? We may still be vulnerable to death and decay, but the flames of hell cannot prevail. Friends, I really do believe that through prayer and through worship, 
The Holy Spirit can retrain our souls to respond to the goodness of God rather than react to the evil of the world. And I think if we do this, we can be men and women who walk in grace and peace. And with that, we're going to go to communion. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And I want to make an invitation. What we've talked about today, what Paul has been writing about, this is the kind of hope that human beings can experience and have amidst a world that keeps coming, amidst all kinds of hardship that won't let up. This is the kind of hope you can have. That even if your body is destroyed, that resurrection is coming. That there is nothing on this side of eternity that can rob us of the new life that Jesus has already paid for. That he died. He really did die. He was a real person who really was God, and he really did rise again, and he really did offer that life to us. This is the beginning of the gospel. And if you're here today, and you're ready for that kind of hope, if you want to experience that kind of grace and peace in your life, and you're tired of doing it your own way, and you're ready to follow Jesus, he's ready to invite you into that. He's already laid down his life for you. This is what these elements are. Christ told us to do this all the time and remember that his body was broken, that his blood was spilled so that, because of his love, so that we can be with him forever. And so that, in this life, we may have peace. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and reflect on the elements in your hands. And if you have yet to decide to follow Jesus, I'm going to ask you to be a little brave. And this is not, I'm not trying to emotionally manipulate you or force you into something. If you are ready to say yes to Jesus and you want to kind of start down this pathway of following him, I would love to just see your eyes and have you raise your hand so that I can pray for you. You can follow up with me later. We can gift you a Bible and we can, we can meet with you and kind of equip you on your journey. This is not about you joining Red Hills Church. This is about you walking into the family of God. And whether you're visiting from out of state or you're going to live here for the next 20 years, I'd love to meet you and shake your hand because the scriptures talk about how heaven throws a party when you repent from sin and you come to Christ. So we'd love to celebrate with you. So if that's you and you feel like it's finally time and you're ready, would you just look up at me and show me your eyes and raise your hand? Thank you for being brave. Even if you have already said yes to Jesus and are following him, I, I will invite you to say this prayer. It's not a formula, but I think God wants to be with us, and talking to him is a great place to start. Let's pray together. Jesus, creator of heaven and earth, savior of the world, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. And thank you for inviting me into new life. Thank you for forgiving me. And thank you for loving me. 
I believe that you are the Lord of the world. I believe that you are the King of heaven. And I believe that you are my Savior. I want to follow you. I want to know you. When Jesus was taken away unjustly and brought before Pontius Pilate, before he did that, he had a meal with his disciples. And he took the bread and he took the cup. And as he took the bread, he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body that I'm breaking for you. So do this and remember what I've done. Let's take it together. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you for the hope of your love. And we ask that you would empower us to live out the life you've given us. We love you and we thank you and we trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.